which afforded us just some much-needed rest and rejuvenation, although we found out that vacation is a lot different when you have a one-year-old. And so that was a a good experience, somewhat restful. Uh, And it's it's good to be back with you. As I was contemplating what to do this Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday before Easter, I contemplated jumping back into Colossians, but then we would take a week off from Colossians next week and then jump back in. So rather than hopping back and forth, I thought, why don't we... Why don't we take some time and and prepare our hearts uh, for Resurrection Sunday next week and our Good Friday services uh, this Friday. Uh, and I thought we would spend some time in Luke this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open up to, to Luke chapter 22. Uh, and I wanted to look at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 46. Read along with me. It says, And he, speaking of Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is a a famous passage uh, of Scripture. Uh, It's well known. uh, And it's uh, interestingly enough, it's it's looked to uh, by Mormons uh, as having a, a very very important significance, uh, and both both Christians and Mormons uh, believe in something called the the atonement uh, or the uh, the payment for the sins of man, and that that payment for sin was accomplished by Jesus. Uh, but when, they, when we use the term atonement as Christians, we mean something completely different from what Mormons mean uh, when they use that term. And so it's always important to, uh, when speaking with somebody about faith, can you define that term for me? Uh, according to, to the Mormon church, Jesus paid for our sins not on the cross, but actually here in the garden. Uh, they believe that his suffering here is what made uh, payment for our sins. Listen to uh, Ezra Taft Benson, the 13th president of uh, the LDS Church, says it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Christ suffered as only as God would suffer, bearing our griefs, carrying our sorrows, being wounded for our transgressions, voluntarily submitting himself to the iniquity of us all, just as Isaiah prophesied. He continues, it was in Gethsemane that Jesus took on himself the sins of the world. In Gethsemane that his pain was equivalent to the cumulative burden of all men. In Gethsemane that he descended below all things so that all could repent and come to him. 
Another Mormon teacher uh, says, Forgiveness is available because Christ the Lord sweat great drops of blood in Gethsemane as he bore the incalculable weight of the sins of all who had ever or ever would repent. Because in a garden called Gethsemane outside Jerusalem's walls, in agony beyond compare, he took upon himself the sins of all men on condition of repentance. But as we read the Bible, which one does the Bible emphasize? The garden or the cross? The cross, over and over again. The garden is, is obscure in the Bible. It's only mentioned a couple of different places. But over and over again, the cross is pointed to as where Christ paid for our sins. Christ didn't sweat for us. He died for us. Uh, listen to some of these verses that, in the New Testament that point to Jesus' death on the cross as being what saves us. Romans 5, 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, For the word of the cross, not the word of the garden, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He died for our sins. Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And then Philippians 2.8, speaking of how Jesus humbled himself and became a man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Which then raises a question about this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. If Jesus wasn't paying for sin here in the Garden, what's happening? What is taking place uh, that would bring our Lord to such anguish where, he is, where, where blood is coming out from his sweat glands? What would bring him to that position? Which is a good question, right? What would cause him such agony? And, well, what I want to do is kind of get a running start into this. Look, turn back with me uh, to the beginning of Luke. We're going to do just a, a, a brief overview because it's important to see the context uh, that Luke is, uh, is building up to, to this point. Luke, Luke 1 and 2 uh, we're very familiar with every Christmas time, are all about uh, the, the prophecies about Jesus' birth and his birth. Uh, Luke 3 is going to be about John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. And then, if you look in the middle of Luke 3, uh, 3.23, everyone's favorite portions of Scripture. What is it? Uh, genealogy. I know we all get really excited to read those, uh, but we, all, we need to understand that the context and genealogies are uh, used by the authors of Scripture to make a theological point. They use history uh, to teach us theology. Uh, and what, what happened immediately prior to, to that genealogy? You have a, a declaration from God at the baptism of Jesus. And, and what does God the Father, with a voice from heaven, say about his son in verse 22? Is behold, you are my beloved son, which with you I am well pleased. So you have one son of God, and then look at the end of the genealogy in Luke 3. At the very end of chapter 3, there's another son of God. Who is it? Adam. See, Luke is trying to make a connection between the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. He's drawing a connection by referring to them both as sons of God. And then, just like the first Adam was tempted, now what's the very next thing in Luke chapter 4? What does Jesus have to go endure? 
the temptation of Satan. Uh, and he's tempted continuously for 40 days. In Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, there's only three of them listed, uh, but in the Greek it's clear that he was continuously tempted uh, throughout that 40 days. And with each of those temptations, Satan is trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Uh, See, if Jesus is going to be the, the perfect spotless lamb to pay for our sins, he has to have a perfect record. So Satan's just trying to get him to deviate just a little bit. To, to take what is rightfully his, if you read those temptations, it's, hey, uh, Jesus, I'll give you all authority. But Jesus is going to get that authority anyway. So he's trying to, Satan's trying to get Jesus to seize what is rightfully his, but in his own timing and in his own way, rather than submitting to the plan of God the Father. And if you look at the last verse in Luke, uh, or 4.13, the last verse of the temptation, uh, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan departed and said, I'm, I'm going to wait for another opportunity at this. And uh, Matthew's Gospel, and as he lays out the temptation, Jesus is in his final uh, quotation of Scripture. He says, Satan, be gone. Which means, who's still in authority? Even though Satan is tempting Jesus, Jesus is still the one in authority to say, okay, you can depart from me now. Satan, you go on your way. I'm still in authority. So Jesus faces this, this brutal temptation in the wilderness. And then verse 14 in chapter 4 through chapter 9, verse 50, is Jesus' ministry in Galilee, that northern part uh, of uh, the land of Palestine, which is primarily made up of Greeks. And look with me at chapter 9, verse 51. So everything prior to this had been uh, in the northern part of Israel. And then 951 is a turning point in Luke's Gospel. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, and that's, a, that's an allusion to an Old Testament passage, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, which says, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. What Luke is saying is that Jesus, after doing these miracles and this ministry in the northern part of Israel, in Galilee, he's now, he is now set, his, his, he set his face like, like flint, like a rock. He's determined to go to Jerusalem. And what's in Jerusalem? His death. He's going to his death. And the remainder of Luke from chapter 9 through 19 is his journey to Jerusalem to his death. And the emphasis shifts from being about miracles to being about teaching his disciples. He's going to perform some miracles on the way, but the emphasis upon preparing his disciples for his death, burial, and resurrection. Jump over to to chapter 19, verse 28, and we will see Jesus entering Jerusalem for the final time. The triumphal entry, and then in chapters 20 and 21, uh, all of the, the Jewish leaders uh, want to play uh, theology quiz with Jesus. They, they bring up, hey, so by what authority do you do these things? Or what about, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Uh, should, if there's this hypothetical situation where uh, somebody gets married uh, and then he dies, what happens to his wife and then his brothers? And this question about the resurrection by the Sadducees, they all question Jesus and ultimately Jesus has a question for them and he stumps them and the questions stop. And then we come to to Luke 22, 
And we're drawing nearer and nearer to the crucifixion. Chapter 22, we're going to see this is now the final night of Jesus' life. This is him with his disciples in the Last Supper. Judas goes out. They celebrate the, the Passover meal. They have an argument about who is the greatest. And then look in verse 31, where Jesus is going to inform Peter of something that's going to be important. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you and your faith, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times, deny three times that you know me. Peter's saying, hey, I'm ready to, to go with you anywhere. Jesus says, not, not quite. I know, you, I know you're, you're revved up and ready to go, but you're not quite there. Then we, we see the portion that we, that we will ultimately land on this morning with Jesus praying in the garden. But let's fly over that really quick and jump over to verse 47. Where we see that while Jesus was still speaking to his disciples of, hey, telling them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray. There came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And when Jesus, then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders, uh, who had come out against him. Have you come out against me uh, as a robber with swords and clubs? See, this isn't the first time they have come after Jesus. They had come after him before. In Luke chapter 4, uh, he, he reads in the synagogue a prophecy from Isaiah and says, hey, this day, this is fulfilled in your presence. And then what do they do? They take him up to the, the cliff, and they're about ready to, uh, to throw him off. And then Luke just says, and then he passed through their midst. He's like, I want more details. What happened? I, I want to know, how did Jesus escape this mob and this crowd? And the short answer was, it wasn't his time. And now here again you have this situation with a crowd coming ready to kill Jesus, but something's different this time. Look at me at verse 53. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now in... In the Greek, it's a little bit more specific than that. In the Greek, it's literally, this is the hour of the power of the darkness. It's not, it's not generalities, it's specific. The hour, meaning this is, this is this designated period of time, not just a 60-minute time frame, but this is the time. The power refers to the idea of, of having authority over somebody. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, there was the concept of being in someone's hand. And the darkness refers to Satan 
and his demonic hosts. This is the hour of Satan. This is that time when Jesus is given over into the power and authority of Satan for Satan to do with him as he wishes. Which is pretty sobering, right? We saw this also in the Old Testament with Job. Job comes in and uh, is accusing this faithful man before God. And God says this in Job chapter 2, verse 4. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Satan says, hey, this, this faithful man, Job, who's already gone through one trial of you taking all of his possessions and all of his children, Lord, he, he, he didn't turn and curse you. But now if you take his health, if you make him suffer, he will turn and he will reject you. And, and God says, all right, Satan, behold, he is in your hand, or the idea of he is in your power. But God says this, only spare his life. So he entrusted Job into Satan's power. So you can do whatever you want to him, but you can't take his life. Job and his friends never understood two, two realities. That there's an invisible realm and a visible realm. We, as the reader, we get to see what's going on. We get to see the invisible realm of what's happening with Job. We get to see that part of his suffering is because Satan is just attacking him in an unrestrained way. We also see that with Peter, because Jesus told us in, here in this chapter, hey Peter, Satan is going to sift you. Satan is asked to have you, and he's been given permission. But I've prayed for you that you're going to come out of it, and when you do, go and turn, return to your brothers. And in both of those situations, Satan had, had free reign. And now... Satan is going to have free reign over our Lord and Savior. And we need to understand that there is the visible and there is the invisible in this situation when we come to the Garden of Gethsemane. There's, there's a comforting verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, uh, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And that, that's a verse of incredible encouragement, right? Of knowing that, that there's this filter that, of things that come into our life that, that, that God is there and he, he doesn't let anything in that is beyond what we are able to endure. Anything that is beyond us. But we also have to realize this, that what Jesus can endure is far, far greater than anything that we can endure. So as, as, as God says to Satan, you have full reign to do whatever you want to the Son. That this torture and torment of Christ is going to be far greater than we can imagine. This is the appointed time for Satan to make his supreme effort to try and keep Jesus from the cross. And while Jesus' hands were restrained earlier in Jesus' ministry, his hands are uncuffed now. And he is trying to keep Jesus from the cross. So as we, as we dive into these verses in Luke 22, we're going to see how Jesus responds in this moment of greatest temptation. 
with the, the unrestrained forces of hell coming after him. And first, we will see that Jesus is concerned for his disciples. We see this in, in verse 40 and then again in 45 and 46. Let's look at those. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And at the end of this section, bracketing Jesus' prayer. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now Jesus' time has come. And on, on this night of his of his brutal torture at the hands of men and the full unrestrained onslaught of Satan. And then what's he going to face the next day? The full wrath of God. What is he concerned about right now? His disciples. The men who have been with him for the last three years of his ministry. Uh, And Luke doesn't record it, but John does. On his way to the garden, Jesus prays the high priestly prayer where he prays for his disciples. John 17, I'm just going to read you a portion of what he prays for them. John 17, verse 11 through 15. Jesus says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Speaking of his disciples. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus knows exactly what he's about to endure. And what is his prayer for his disciples on his, on his way to the garden? Lord, I know Satan is going to have unrestrained power against me and he's going to be coming after me, but guard and protect my disciples. Jesus prays for their protection. And then as he, as he comes to the garden, he's prayed for their protection. And he knows that God will protect them, but does not, divine sovereignty never negates human responsibility. So Jesus is saying, hey, I've prayed for you. Now what is he, what is he calling the disciples to do? You, you need to pray. And you need to pray with the implication that if you don't pray, you're going to fall into temptation. Pray so that you don't enter into temptation. They still needed to do that. They had a responsibility. They needed to be on their guard and pray for strength against this coming onslaught of temptation. And what a serious warning. It's said twice. And and, uh, parents, when you have to say something twice to your kids, they know it's serious. right? Uh, And when Jesus says something twice in a short span of but seven verses, we need to pay attention. When, When we look... Uh, At this setting here in the garden, as we look at all of the gospel accounts, we see that there are 12 men in the garden. Jesus and 11 of his disciples. He left eight of his disciples uh, closer to the entrance. Then he takes three of them, Peter, James, and John. He brings them with him. And then Jesus is going to travel a little bit further on and isolate himself to pray. But of the 12 men in the garden, how many of them are praying? One. 
How many of them should be praying? All twelve, right? All twelve. And even though they were commanded and warned by Christ that they should pray, they did not. And you would think that of the eleven disciples, who should definitely be praying? Peter. I would like to think that if Jesus said, hey, Satan's coming after you, I'd be like, okay, let me hit my knees now. Let me pray for a while. Lord, protect me. You would think that Peter, of all of the disciples, would say, okay, I really need to take this seriously because Satan wants to have me. He's coming for me. But Peter is not. They are not praying. And we can easily see the result. right? Because in this moment of temptation... Who's praying? Jesus. And he's the only one who is successful in dealing with this temptation. What happens with the 11 disciples as soon as Jesus is arrested and taken? They scatter to the wind. They fail that temptation. They give in to to fear. And they take flight. But you know what? They get the picture later on. Because what did we just read in Acts Acts chapter 6? What did they understood? They understand that they were to devote themselves to. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. They learned that lesson the hard way. They understood, okay, now I need to devote myself to prayer. Now I need to to focus on it because I don't want to fall into temptation and I need to pray for the church. The lesson is clear here that if Christ needed much prayer to battle against his temptations, what makes you think that you can overcome your temptations without prayer? Spiritual pride is at the root of our prayerlessness. And ignorance of the invisible spiritual battle around us encourages that pride. For some of us, 1 Corinthians 10.13 is a great, great encouragement, but we also need to look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, which says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Of we need to be dependent upon the Lord in prayer, understanding that we can't deal with our temptations in our own strength and wisdom. Jesus was concerned for his disciples. He knew that they would be scattered. He knew that they would deny him because it was prophesied. But that doesn't mean that they were not responsible for their lack of prayer, that they weren't responsible for their denial in the midst of that temptation. And after urging his disciples to pray, Jesus turns to pray to his Father in verses 42, or 41 to 42. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, when facing temptation, the right response is always pray to our Heavenly Father. Always, always, always. And Jesus went a little ways from his disciples because he needed a little bit of privacy. He went far enough to, uh, to be alone, but also was close enough to still be heard by them. And Jesus is going to make two simple petitions. And the first one says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And so what is Jesus asking here? What is he saying? And, and what, what is this cup that he is asking to be removed? Well, the cup in the Old Testament is often uh, a picture of the wrath of God. 
over and over again, uh, Old Testament authors allude to uh, the cup of God's wrath. And you see this also culminating in the book of Revelation. Uh, and while I believe that, uh, that the cup that Jesus is going to drink includes the wrath of God here, I think it's more than that. Uh, turn with me, keep your finger there, and Luke can turn over to Mark chapter 10. Here's why I think uh, the cup is a little bit more uh, than just the wrath of God. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Uh, James and John, two of the ones who are in the inner circle of Jesus and with him closer in the garden, they come up and they have a, a very unique request. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And like, okay, it seems like it's got a string attached. It's a loaded question, loaded request. And, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said uh, to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is prepared for those whom it has, it is for those whom, for whom it has been prepared. So a couple of things to, to note there. That if James and John are going to drink a cup as well, the cup doesn't necessarily refer to the wrath of God, because as believers we are saved and rescued from the wrath of God. Something else unique is that in verse 38, uh, the, the Greek more literally is, are you able to drink the cup that I am drinking? Uh, it's it's a, a present tense reality. Jesus is already drinking the cup. Uh, and if that is... If that's the case, then it's not just the wrath of God. It's not just what he's going to endure on the cross. But uh, the cup would refer to anything that, uh, that is prepared for him during his earthly life. Now, one pastor says the cup for Jesus then consisted of everything about his life that was necessary for him to be the Messiah. This included, among countless other things, living every second of every day in sinless perfection, and during the 40-day temptation by Jesus, qualifying as the man of sorrows, being victorious over the multiple attacks of his earthly opponents, as well as the weariness resulting from an unbelievably busy ministry, such as is especially detailed in the Gospel of Mark. So when Jesus is, is asking for uh, this cup to be removed from him, He's not saying, Lord, I don't want to deface your, your wrath. His request for the cup to be removed from him is not a sign of, uh, of weakness either. It is, it's a sign of his holiness. Speaking out against the thought of bearing sin and guilt and judgment and wrath. So think of it this way. You and I, when we are tempted, what are we tempted to do? We are tempted to sin. And that's our, our natural uh, nature. Right? We, we, we naturally gravitate towards sin. But what does Jesus naturally gravitate towards? Not sin, but holiness. He gravitates towards holiness. And now, what, what is Jesus having to do on the cross? Not to, to gravitate holiness, but he is going to become the sin bearer. All of the sin of the world is going to be placed upon him 
So isn't it natural for the holy, perfect, spotless Son of God to recoil at the thought of becoming sin? 2 Corinthians 5.21 He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus, at the thought of bearing the sins of man and becoming sin, which is completely contrary to His nature, He is beginning to to struggle with that. His temptation isn't just towards uh, avoiding the cross. His temptation is towards holiness. Another pastor says this, Satan's temptation of Jesus here was just the opposite of our temptation. He was perfectly pure and righteous, and his absolute holiness motivated his every thought, word, and deed. While believers struggle to abandon sin and embrace holiness, Jesus struggled to set aside his holiness and embrace sin-bearing. He was not fighting against sinful impulses to become holy, but against holy impulses to allow himself to be made sin for believers. Satan tempts Christians to cling to sin. He tempted Jesus to cling to holiness. And wouldn't that be what Satan is saying to Jesus? Jesus, you don't have to do this. You don't have to go to the cross. Just remain holy. Just continue as you are. And if Jesus does that, if he gives in, then we're still lost in sin. There is no sacrifice for us if Jesus clings to his holiness. And I'm thankful that Jesus' prayer did not end with that. Because his second petition says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And even his first petition, there's a, is a conditional statement in that. He says, if you are willing. So again, all of this, he's making this request, but he's also saying, Lord, may your will be done. May your will be accomplished, not my will. Jesus knows that he needs to go to the cross. He's known that for a long time. You look at the Gospel of Luke, multiple times he tells his disciples, I've got to go to Jerusalem. They're going to be, arrest me. They're going to hand me uh, into the, the hands of the Romans, and I'm going to be crucified. And uh, this, this verse isn't implying division within the Godhead or that Jesus has a different will from God the Father, but just that, that Jesus is understanding what he needs to do and is wrestling with the idea of taking on sin. And, and as we saw in Jesus' response to James and John, he says, hey, you will drink uh, this cup. We all have a cup to drink. You realize that? You think about that? In this Christian life, he says to, uh, to, to James and John, you'll drink this cup, and we all have a different cup to drink. We all have a different destiny to fulfill, something that has been uh, given to us by the Lord. For James, his cup was complete in Acts chapter 12, because King Herod martyrs him, has him killed. His cup was, was a lot briefer than his brother John's. John lived up until A.D. 90. He wrote many books in the New Testament, wrote Revelation, uh, and lived a long life and suffered greatly. James lived uh, a short life and had a brutal death. Uh, And we all must drink the cup that has been prepared for us. For some of us, that may uh, be a long life. It may be a short life. It may be a life marred with with suffering. It may be a life with great health. Uh, it may mean, uh, as many of us, of moving from California to Idaho. <laughs> from, from some of us, it may be moving from Idaho overseas to go and fulfill the Great Commission. Now, it may mean uh, so many different things, but we all have a cup to drink. And it may be difficult, it may be lighter, it's going to be different from other people. And when we get that, rec- that cup, when it becomes clear, that cup that the Lord has given to us, what should be our response? 
Lord, may your will be done, not just mine. Uh, and if that's going to happen, if we're going to desire, the, uh, if the Lord's will is going to be accomplished, we also have to check our heart and say, Lord, help me to desire your will instead of my own. Lord, help me to begin to want to do what you want me to do rather than just what I want to do all the time. Help me to drink the cup that you have for me. Jesus is, is an amazing example of submission to the will of God here. Saying, Lord, whatever you have for me, even if it's enduring the, the onslaught of Satan and the wrath, uh, your wrath on the cross tomorrow, may I submit to that and may your will be accomplished. Well, we've seen Jesus' concern for his disciples and uh, his petition before his father. And then verses 43 and 44, back in Luke chapter 22, uh, are going to give us additional insight into the the seriousness of his prayers here. We're going to see Jesus' agony in his prayer. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose, I'm sorry, and so among the gospel writers, Luke, as a physician, is the only one to, to record these words. Uh, regarding the angel, this is the second time an angel has come and ministered to Jesus. The first time was during the tem- or after the temptation uh, in the wilderness uh, when he was there for 40 days. And uh, the angels came and ministered to Jesus and strengthened him in that situation. And, they do, and an angel comes and d- does the same here. Not to alleviate his suffering, but to allow him to continue suffering. It's like uh, the coach in the, in the corner of a boxing ring. Uh, he, he, he gets his fighter ready to go, and then he sends him back in. Uh, that's what this angel is doing. Okay, you've got you to stay in there. You can do this. Uh, that's what this angel is doing with Jesus, encouraging and strengthening him to continue in this onslaught. And then verse 44, we see, we see the details of why Jesus needed strengthening. We see... Uh, both the, I guess, the results of the, the visible and the invisible realms. And again, remember the context. In, in but a few hours, Jesus is going to be brutally tortured and murdered at the hands of men. And more importantly, while enduring the physical torture of hanging on the cross, God the Father is going to pour out all of his wrath that you and I deserve for our sin. He's going to pour that upon Jesus. Christ will become sin for us so that we might become righteousness in him. And on the cross, God the Son is going to be separated from God the Father, leading him to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, all of that weighs upon Jesus, which in and of itself would be quite enough to make me sweat drops of blood. But in addition to anticipating this experience and bearing a full weight of sin and the wrath of God, Jesus is at this moment that we are looking at under attack from Satan. This is the hour of the power of darkness and facing this unrestrained attack we, we can't quantify what Jesus felt because this, this is where we just we look to the invisible now uh, and see this, this suffering of Christ in the garden and we just see the results of it. That being in an agony in an agony is the idea of being in an athletic contest that is, that is grueling and uh, exhausting. Being in a, in a battle uh, it's, it's of severe anxiety, severe mental and or physical distress. 
and the toll of this battle takes uh, its effect. And in uh, what sometimes, if, if you've not read this or not familiar with it, you may initially respond like, "That's not real. Like you can't, you can't bleed through. You can't sweat blood. Like that's not even a thing." Actually, it is. It's a it's a genuine medical condition. It's very dangerous. It's known as uh, hematidrosis, uh, and it's caused by f- extreme physical and or mental stress. Under such great stress and anguish, the blood vessels that feed your sweat glands burst, and your blood mixes in with sweat as it's coming out of your pores, and so it gives the appearance of sweating blood. Now, Leonardo da Vinci described a soldier who sweated blood before battle. Uh, individuals uh, have also seen this uh, in the London bombings of World War II, uh, that people would become so nervous and distraught that they would start sweating drops of blood. And another case where someone had a fear of, of a storm while sailing. Uh, This is a medical condition, and the intensity and the strain upon Jesus, both physically and spiritually, is on display in this agonizing prayer to God the Father. And yet, Jesus endured all of this. He faced all of this temptation without giving in, enduring the full weight of Satan's armies and his attacks. And we know that that throughout... uh, Scripture. What are demons able to do? You look at uh, the Gospels when Jesus is casting out demons. What are demons doing to the person they inhabit? They're torturing them. They're, they're tormenting them. We see that also in, in Revelation. This is what demons do. And the full weight of all of this upon Jesus, we cannot even begin to, to quantify. And so as we look at Jesus in this moment, we see a man in agony. A man who is already a bloody mess and no one has laid a hand on him. And all that Jesus endured that night in the garden and all that he endured on the cross the next day, he endured so that we might be saved. So that we might be forgiven for our sins. So that victory would be earned over Satan and his demonic powers. On the cross, Jesus endured the penalty for sin that we deserve, that we should have paid. Our sin against the holy God makes us worthy of only receiving his wrath. And Jesus endured the cross and rose from the dead so that salvation could be a free gift to us. It's a gift given by God to us. That's what scripture says. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 For by grace you have been saved, and that not through uh, your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's a gift. Now, do you earn gifts? If you earn gifts, it's not a gift. That's the reality. And so, we have this free gift of salvation if we believe in Jesus Christ, but we must also remember that this gift of salvation was not free to Jesus. It cost him dearly. It's free to us. But we begin to see, this, this is the beginning point of Jesus' suffering this night leading up to the cross. This is, this is the, the first portions of it. The beginning of his sufferings, and this is what he is enduring so that salvation might be free for us. What we've seen this morning is, is the beginning of the end of Jesus' life. The cup that he's been drinking is almost complete. And only the worst remains. 
We see in the middle of that his deep concern for his disciples, even as he's on the precipice of such intense suffering. We see uh, his prayerful submission to the will of God the Father, and we see the agony and anguish that he experienced in the garden as he's bearing the full attack of Satan, as he's contemplating the, the seriousness of what it looks like to become the sin bearer, which is contrary to his own holiness, and then what it looks like to be separated from God the Father while he is on the cross. And, and so what is our big takeaway from all of this? Jesus' agonizing prayer in the garden shows us the depth of his love for us. And, and this is, again, like I said, only the beginning. And the intensity of this moment as he is under this temptation and under these attacks to the point that he is sweating drops of blood. We, we need to, to pause and think about this leading up to Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. We all need to think more deeply about the wrath of God. Now, we, we have been saved from that wrath through Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean that we just stop thinking about it. We need to think about it and, and understand that the wrath of God, the, the thought of experiencing that, it drove Jesus to his knees in prayer. Right? And, and, and does, does it create that same level of, I guess, distress within us as we think about what it would be like to face the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins? Because if, if we don't tremble at that, we may be taking our salvation lightly. We may be thinking, well, it's not a big deal. But it is. We need to think deeply about the wrath of God. And we need to think about the victory over Satan, which Christ accomplished for us at such a great cost. And we need to think about the wickedness of our adversary, the devil. And even though he is defeated, he still walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. What kind of animal is the most dangerous? A wounded animal. And that's what Satan is right now. And as we think about these things, may our appreciation for Christ grow deeper and deeper. May our understanding of what he has done for us grow wider. And may we just, again, fall to our knees in appreciation for what he has done in enduring and defeating the powers of darkness and then bearing our sin on the cross and doing the wrath of God that we deserve. Jesus didn't deserve it. We did. And he endured all of that for our sake. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning in awe of your love for us. Amazed at what you have endured on our behalf. Lord, we cannot even begin to fathom what you suffered in the garden, let alone even more severely on the cross. So Lord Jesus, we come and we thank you. We come and we worship you. We praise you for being the holy and spotless one. For not giving in to temptation. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being victorious over Satan. And Lord, now we ask that you would help us to pray. That we would pray fervently. 
so that we ourselves might not enter into temptation. That we would pray fervently for your church and against the powers of darkness. Satan is still very much alive and roaming about. And Lord, may you use us as instruments in your hands. And may we use the instrument of prayer to battle against him. Prayer and the word are the weapons of our warfare. And may we utilize them in our own lives and in the lives of others. And Lord, I pray that as we prepare to celebrate what you accomplished on the cross, and that as we prepare to rejoice that the cross was not the end, but that you rose from the grave on the third day, Lord, I pray that this week that we would contemplate the depth and the breadth of what you have saved us from. And that we would grow in appreciation and worship, love and affection for you, for who you are and what you have done. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you and pray these things to our Heavenly Father in your name. Amen.